You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We all want to relate to someone. We enjoy it when uh, we can find someone that we know that we can relate to. Maybe somebody came from a similar area or a similar upbringing or has similar struggles. Most of us relate to folks who are in our same socioeconomic strata. Uh, we try as hard as possible, most of us, to relate to the people that we actually want to relate to. Maybe you saw it this past week, Princess Meghan, who's, I think, married to Prince Harry. She was trying as hard as possible to relate to the American people by talking about her upbringing and just different struggles in her life. And for us, we're sitting here, normal folks, uh, we're sitting here thinking, okay, so you're a princess. You have a $25 million endowment that you're having to live off of. And you're trying to relate to us. And even Oprah has her eyebrows like this. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think this is, worth, this is not what we're talking about relating to someone. But we want to relate to folks as much as possible. And so as we've looked at some of these judges in the book of Judges, we'll be in chapter 13, for many of us, it's been difficult to relate to them because it's, it happened thousands of years ago. M- most of us don't have the strength of a guy named Samson. But what I want us to see this morning is that we are much more closely related to him in our character than we may think. So we've got to hustle through several chapters. Go to Judges chapter 13 with me, if you would. That's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the seventh book of the Old Testament. Judges chapter 13. We'll begin there. I I will not be able to do the text justice in reading the whole thing. So some of these parts I'm going to uh, surmise for us, but hopefully you have a copy of God's Word. You can read these um, on your own. Incredible, incredible chapters. So Ch- Judges chapter 13 begins here. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Everybody say 40. That's an important number. We see that all throughout Scripture. This was actually the longest enslavement that we see in the book of Judges. Uh, and 40 is a number both of judgment and of completion. So there's a reason this judgment is happening last. Verse number two, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. Everybody say Manoah. That's Samson's dad. And his wife, we don't know her name, was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So we see here, there are 40 years, they're enslaved to who? The Philistines, or if you're from the South, the Philistines. But it's supposed to be the Philistines. Now, the the Philistines were uh, incredibly sophisticated people. They came up, they were the first folks to use bridges. They were the first folks to use um, weapons made out of iron. They were the first ones to have battle plans when they went into, into battle. They were just incredibly smart, ingenuitive people. So right now, the Israelites are bound by the Philistines. Now notice, in between here, when we're we're, we're talking about this judge, Samson, 
there's no cry for mercy. We've seen so far in the book of Judges, often what happens is there is oppression by an outside enemy, and then God's people cry out for mercy, and God responds in mercy, and he redeems his people. But here, God's going to redeem his people, and we never see a cry for mercy from them. Uh, verse number four. So this is what the angel told Manoah or Manoah's wife. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now this Nazarite vow, you can read more about it in Numbers chapter six, but basically you wouldn't shave your hair uh, you would have nothing off of a vine and you could never touch anything dead because that was unclean. And so it's kind of like Doug Dynasty meets ZZ Top. And so when we think about these guys, we think Samson and we see these beautiful pictures and he's, and he's you know, th they're from the, uh, the Renaissance era and he's just this beautiful man. He's probably closer to this. So uh, Samson's this crazy messed up dude and it's similar so the Nazarite vow was normally done, if you look at Numbers chapter 6, it was normally done for a short period of time. And the reason they did that is because they were concentrating and focusing their efforts on the face of God. But here, from his birth, the angel comes and tells Manoah and his wife, he says, make sure he, he's a Nazarite from even before birth. Now, you shouldn't have to tell a pregnant woman not to drink and do those kinds of things, but that's how uh, much this couple was in debauchery. So this wasn't a God-fearing couple. In fact, we see that as the angel comes to them, Manoah's wife says, hey, there's, there's an angel. Manoah's like, I want to see the angel. And they get into this quarrel all through chapter 1. And finally, when the angel shows up, we see in verse number 11, and Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, talking about the angel, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Interesting words, by the way, verse 12. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? So he says, I, I want the rules. Like, how are we supposed to be raising this kid? Look at verse number 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? Now, Manoah, again, has no concept really of Yahweh at this time. He thinks this guy is a man. He doesn't even recognize him as an angel. Later we see in the passage, he's like, this must have been some sort of pagan ritual. He offers to make him, to cook him a goat. And the reason he does that is because that was a pagan ritual to invite someone in. So this person doesn't even, so Manoah has no idea this person is even from God. Or even that in verse number 18, the angel of the Lord said to him that he is God. Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now, Manoah comes to this man of God, this angel of God, and says, what are the rules? What are the expectations? And God says, I am wonderful. This word wonderful in the Old Testament is only used in divine circles. So this angel of God, most theologians would say that this is a Christophany. This is Jesus Christ coming before he actually came to earth as a man, appearing to Manoah and to his wife. So instead of rules and regulations, God shows up and says, this is my revelation. This is my identity. This is who I am. I'm calling you. Name him Samson. We see it at the end of the chapter because I am wonderful. And this son is going to be wonderful. Look at verse number 24. So they have this back and forth with this man of God, with this angel, and they're scared to death. But the verse number 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Now, Samson means 
little son, S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. It means little Samson. I mean, little son. So basically, in the, in, the, in the pagan tradition, and most of us know this just from watching any sort of movie or anything about uh, history, is that one of the primary gods that pagans worship is the sun. And so we see here this intermingling of the sacred and the secular, because even these Israelite folks are naming their son after a pagan god, and they call him little son, Samson. Now, as we see through this first chapter that, we, that we're looking at, Samson is born with every spiritual advantage. He has every advantage. He has God coming down to his parents and saying, I want him to follow me for his entire life. They come down, he, the angel of God, I think it's Jesus Christ, comes down and says, I want to have him redeem my people. I want to use him for this mission, for my mission. I'm coming down to tell you this personally so that he will follow me. So the story starts out well, but we're going to see through the next few chapters that it ends with great disappointment. And the people of God are still looking for an ultimate deliverer because Samson does not fulfill, okay? Spoiler alert, if you've never heard the story of Samson, it doesn't end well, okay? He, he decides to go his own way. Uh, that, just, that was in my head, I don't know. Maybe it's in y'all's now. Uh, I forget who sings that, Kansas or somebody. But he decides to go his own way, okay? We see here in chapter 14. Let's jump in there. Uh, notice at the end of 13, I think this is interesting. I underlined all the times it said this in my, in my Bible. It talks about how the spirit of the Lord is there among him and uses him. Now, what we see is, is Samson, what seems to be fits of anger, and they are. It's, it's mostly roid rage because he's just, he's, a, I think, probably a pretty jacked dude. Uh, he responds to a lot of folks in a lot of situations simply in anger for his own vindication, his own righteousness. But we still see throughout the passage, and if you read it, several times throughout, the Spirit of the Lord enables him, and that's because God is using him for a bigger purpose. So big picture of Samson, God is using this guy, even though he's both jacked and jacked up. So chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Or another translation of that, maybe even a little more literal translation of that in the Hebrew is, she pleases me. She pleases me. She is right in my eyes. Notice how that compares and contrasts with the beginning of chapter 13, talking about how the Israelites are doing what pleases them, what is right in their own eyes. Samson always done, he always does what is true to himself. We see that in our culture even today. Hey, just you do you. It is what it is. Be true to yourself. The only truth there is is within you. And that's what he does. He says, uh, I'm going to disregard the influence and the respect of my parents, and I'm going to go find someone on my own. I know I should be finding somebody from my own tribe, but I'm going to let my heart decide. 
as Aladdin says in a Disney song. But this has been around for decades, right? Let your heart, just follow your heart. Go where it goes. And so he says, I want to find this woman who is part of the uncircumcised Philistines. Now, this is not a a racial jab at the Philistines. This is a covenantal theological jab at the Philistines because the goal wasn't to keep a pure bloodline. The goal was to keep pure worshipers of God. And since the Philistines did not worship the one true God, God did not want them to marry outside of the Israelite family. We, we call this being unequally yoked. We see it in Exodus 34. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What happens when we're unequally yoked, and not just in marriage, but in other relationships, what can easily happen is that our faith is pushed to the margins of our lives. Now, what I'm not saying is don't be friends with unbelievers. But what I am saying is this right here, this family of God, this is our primary identity. And as we interact with those who are not part of the family... Our primary mission is to evangelize them with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done because he's given us a new identity. We are to be a light to them, a light in the darkness, not to be overcome by the darkness. So his parents say, Samson, please don't marry this woman. He says, no, I want you to go get her for me. Now, imagine what his parents were thinking, Manoah and his wife. The angel's prediction is that their son is going to be saving all of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And now their son, Samson, is going and marrying who? A Philistine. This is pretty sad. Now we think, how could Samson be so dumb? (laughs) Samson is a picture of the spiritual state of Israel at this point. And I would imagine for most of us, like I said at the beginning, he's probably a representation of the spiritual state of a lot of our hearts. But verse 4 happens. Chapter 14. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So even Samson pursuing a Philistine wife was from the Lord. Now, the author puts that there because he has greater insight to this uh, this story than his parents do. But we know this is from the Lord. Look down at verse number 6. His his mother and his father and Samson, they're walking down the road. They see a lion. A lion jumps out. The spirit of the Lord, verse number six, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he ends up tearing that lion in pieces. Like it says, it's like someone would tear a goat. And I guess maybe in this day, that was just a normal thing. Man, you can just tear a goat to pieces. Well, Samson tore up a a lion like somebody would tear a goat. I can't think of how that relates to our culture, but that's what Samson does. We keep going. It says that uh, he he kills the lion. He leaves it there. uh, He skins it. And there's a carcass there. He comes back a few days later, and some bees have made a hive there in the carcass. And he goes and he grabs some of that honey out of the carcass. Now, remember the Nazarite vow. Is he supposed to be touching anything dead? No. So he just continues to break these rules one after the other. Verse number 10. Now, this is for his marriage. His father went down to the woman that he was looking for at the beginning of chapter 14, and Samson prepared a feast there. Now, this feast is a mista. Everybody say mista. Now, that's a Hebrew word that actually came from the Philistines. The Philistines invented this, and it was a week-long drinking party. That's all it was. So the Philistines were good at a lot of stuff, including um, getting smashed for a week. And so when he says that there, he's incorporating the values of that culture. Now, is he supposed to be drinking any sort of alcohol? Or actually, the Nazarite vow is anything off the vine, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. No, he's not supposed to. But here, he's going to do it for a week Anyway, second half of verse number 10, for so the young men 
used to do. And then verse 11. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me put this riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast, the Mizpah, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. In other words, that's 30 pairs of Tommy John underwear and 30 nice suits. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 change of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, here's his riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So here's what the guys did, the 30 companions. They couldn't figure out what their riddle meant. And so they went to his soon-to-be wife and they said, can you please find out the answer for this riddle so we, can, so we don't have to give away all of these clothes to Samson? So the girl that he wants to marry goes to Samson and says, please, Samson, please tell me the answer. And after several days of nagging, he finally is like, okay, I'll tell you the answer, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> so here's what the answer is. Verse number 18, on the, the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down. Now what's Samson been doing all week? He's been drinking. What does he have? A wife who's nagging him for an answer. So it makes sense. They answer him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, now, I wouldn't say that um, you should base your marriage vows on this, but I think this is interesting. Or don't base anything on this in your marriage or life. But he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. That's good. That's good, guys. I would probably recommend the Song of Solomon if you want to use some, some imagery for your relationship. Don't be calling your wife or your girlfriend a heifer. But then verse 19 and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ascalon and struck down, which means killed, literally in the Hebrew, 30 men of the town, and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. Now, notice, why does God allow Samson to have this strength of killing 30 men and taking their clothes off of them? Because he's got a bigger plan. Does it make sense to us? No. Is it in the word of God so it's true? Yes. Verse number 20, and Samson wife, Samson's wife, while Samson was gone, was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So Samson goes to get these garments, these underwear, and these suits for these guys while he's gone. This, his girlfriend's dad gives his daughter away to Samson's best man. This dude's already got an anger problem. I wouldn't be messing with him. Verse, uh, chapter 15, after some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat romantic. This is getting better and better. Um, yeah, so instead of let's go out to eat, it was BYOG, bring your own goat for date night. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. <laughs> I mean, he called her a heifer. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. This is a really good dad. So besides marriage advice, uh, make sure you learn some parenting tips from this too. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So here's what Samson did. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. So he says, man, if, if y'all are going to take my wife from me and give her to somebody else, um, th and this is a pretty good practical joke. 
Like the fact that he could catch 300 foxes, and it doesn't say here the spirit of the, now notice before it's like, oh, that makes sense. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. It doesn't say the spirit of the Lord is upon him. This dude just went out and found 300 foxes and then tied a torch between their tails and let them go in the fields. You can't make this up. Verse six, then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So the Philistines were even like, man, why did you do this? So they took that guy and his daughter and killed them both. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. What are the odds? Probably pretty low. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed on the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now, struck them hip and thigh in the Hebrew is basically, for us, it would be he opened a can on them. That's basically what it means. Like, he just went crazy on them. Verse number, let's look down at verse number 11. So he's there staying. The Philistines are mad at him. Now they bring the Israelites with him. Verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Now, this is a really sad verse. This is probably the saddest verse in all of these chapters. The Israelites, who God has redeemed and rescued time and time again, who has proven himself, now the Israelite folks are saying, wait, wait, wait. We've got Yahweh over here that we can rescue but Samson, don't you know that we're actually worshiping and enslaved to the Philistines? Why are you making them mad? 3,000 men of Judah, 3,000 Israelites have gone to capture Samson to hand him over to the Philistines. So we see not here just Samson's depravity, but we see the whole depravity of the nation. We also see that Samson's really strong. They sent 3,000 men to capture him. It's pretty crazy. So Samson plays a little joke with him here in the middle of, of chapter 15. He says, uh, he says hey, you, you, can, you, can, you can bind me if you want to, but you're not going to kill me, right? And they're like, no, no, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to turn you over to the Philistines whose crops you just burned with 300 foxes with torches between their tails. No, we're not going to kill you. So Samson says, okay, you can turn me over. No big deal. So that's what happens. They bind him, and they take Samson to the Philistines, and they're like, here you go. About that time, Samson says, you know what? I don't love this idea. So he finds the jawbone of a donkey. Maybe you're familiar with this story, which is a what kind of animal? A dead one. He finds the jawbone of the donkey. At this point, he doesn't really care about his Nazarite vow, but just understand, like, this isn't even going through his mind. He finds the jawbone of a donkey, just a, a, a giant, you know, big piece of bone, and ends up killing one thousand Philistines with that jawbone of a donkey. He just slays them all. And then we get down after, uh, after he does that in verse number 16, and then Samson said, or he technically, this is a song in the Hebrew, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Now, in the Hebrew, it rhymes. <laughs> what this actually means right here, which I wish I could read this in the KJV version because it's a little more interesting, a little more lively, but my wife told me I couldn't, uh, especially for the translation of some of these words. But 
heaps upon heaps basically means it's the same word in the Hebrew as donkey. And so he's saying, I took the jawbone of a donkey and turned all of these donkeys into a pile of donkeys. Now you know why I like to use the KJV on that one? Because that would just be a little bit more fun. So the Israelites would rather hand over their rescuer and remain at peace in their idolatry than be rescued from those who are enslaving them. That's what chapter 15 shows us. The greatest threat to your life, the greatest threat to the people of God, the greatest threat to this church is not extermination. Because when we feel threatened by extermination, what do we do? We, we try to fight against that. We, we pray harder. We hunker down and read the scriptures. We're involved in community. The greatest threat to the people here, and theologians would say, man, this was a, this was a really pivotal time in the life of Israel. These couple of years right here. The greatest threat is not extermination because then we respond with prayer and crying out to God. The greatest threat to the people of God is assimilation. It's being lulled into their idolatry. It's becoming more and more like them. It's making their culture our culture. It's being blinded by the things that God has called us to fight against. It's small baby steps and we never see it coming. Chapter 16, or the end of 15, it says this. As soon as he had finished speaking, he just got through killing these 1,000 men with a jawbone of a donkey. As soon as he finished, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. Basically, he's like, mic drop, 1,000 men with a jawbone. What up? And that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty which makes sense if you just killed a thousand dudes. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And I shall now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. God, what is wrong with you? Notice this prayer of faithlessness, of selfishness. He says, you're gonna let me die? Look at this great work that I just did. Even though he was empowered by who? The spirit of God. It came upon him there in the middle of chapter 15. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it is called En-Hakor, and it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Now, if you go down, if you have notes there in your Bible, which I hope you do, you can see some of those notes there. It says he first named it Ramoth-Lehi, which means the hill of the jawbone. And then shortly thereafter, he named it, he changed it to En-Hakor, which means the spring of him who called. And even in the midst of his selfish prayer, his faithless prayer to God, God is still faithful to Samson because God's got a bigger plan, not just for Samson, but for all of his people. Chapter 16, Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. So now it's not just, hey, I want to get married. Hey, I'm interested in this girl. Hey, I'm killing him. He's just like, I'm going to go down here and get with the first thing I see. He's much more brazen in his sin. He's much more forward. Hey, I'm just going to do this. He's not just disobedient, but he's also foolish. Verse 2, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. <laughs> I mean, folks know about Samson. He's going around slaying them. 
And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we shall kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. He took two gates of the city and threw them on his shoulders and walked 40 miles. We think, okay, yeah, he went from here to here, you know, over to Hebron. I don't know how far that is. Well, Google it. It's 40 miles. So in the middle of the night, he grabs a couple of city gates and takes them 40 miles down the road. Like, I'm Samson. I'm the man. Verse number five. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords came up to him, and they wanted her to seduce him. Now, Delilah means darkness or night, which is interesting because we've seen that word three times already here in this passage, in these previous three verses. So he's slowly gone from, I want you to be this man of God in the light to falling further and further into darkness. Now he ends up with this woman whose name literally means darkness. So they say, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him and humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So he says, you can buy me with fresh strings. And she wakes him up. Hey, Samson, the guys are here. And he busts out and he, he beats him up. He's like, hey, try, try different colored ones. And he breaks out of them. Try new ropes. And he breaks out of them. He says, put my hair in a, in a loom. And he, he wakes up and he breaks it. And he's, he's like, every time, he, he's just like, I, you can't control me. He keeps lying to her, tricking her. And for some reason, he stays with her <laughs> because he wakes up, and there are the guards. He's like, oh, not this again, Delilah. I got to go beat these guys up. He beats them up, kills them, whatever he does. Then it happens again the next night. So Samson, while he may be strong, is not the brightest bulb in the box. But then if we go down to verse number 15, it says this, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? We've seen Samson fall for this once before. Now he is again. You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. <laughs> she nagged him to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, it's astounding that he's still there, that he's still with Delilah. He's confident that his strength cannot be taken away or else he wouldn't be telling her. And I actually think, and commentators would say, that he doesn't actually think his strength lies in his hair. And he doesn't think that it lies with God. He thinks it's up to him. Does he really want his strength to be taken away? No. That, that's the only thing he has going for him. Maybe a speed, if he can ch you know, chase down 300 foxes. But his strength is really the only thing he has going for him. So does he actually think if his head is shaved that he's going to lose that? No. He's just saying other stuff to get her off his back. That's all he's saying. He certainly is not trusting that it comes from God. Then in verse number 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. See, women know. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. 
So Samson, if you think, man, this, this relationship, it seems to be kind of rocky. I don't know how. The, no, <laughs> he, he's already, she's already lied to him multiple times. And then she's like, just go to sleep, Samson. There's no way I would ever cut your hair off, even though I've tried to have you captured multiple times. So she fall, he falls asleep on her knees. Now, what does it say about his dependence on God? <laughs> it's gone. He thinks it's up to him. He thinks even if she does shave my head, I've still got it. He sees his strength as an unalienable right, not part of God's mercy. So he falls asleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as I did at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Keep that in the back of your, of your thinker. Just keep it right there. So it says they gouged his eyes out. Literally what they would do is they would burn his eyes out. That word gouge, it means they would burn them out and then anything that was left, they would just scoop them out. So they made him a blind slave. So the guy who was burning up all their grain with foxes and torches, now he's the one who's grinding grain by hand as a slave to them. How the tables have turned for Samson. If you notice in verse number 22, they let his hair grow again. Now, did the Philistines know that was the secret of his strength? Maybe. Either way, if they thought his strength was supernatural, they had a very small view of God. That's what verse 22 shows us. They had a real small view of God. They didn't think his strength was really anything special. Verse 23. Now the lords of the, of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our, into our hand. And so they bring Samson out and they put him on display. And, and there's thousands of worshipers there at this temple. Look what happens in verse number 28. The house was full, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. We see here Samson finally reaches out in faith. This is a true faithful prayer. He finally acknowledges I've been deceived not just by Delilah, but by my own self-worth, by my own strength, by my own self-reliance. Most of us probably know the rest of the story. Verse 29, and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed down with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So he slaughtered thousands. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So how can we relate to Samson? What can we learn from the life of Samson? The first thing I think that we see is we are our own worst enemy. We are our own worst enemy. We actually are the ones who sabotage the plan of God. 
Here I think we see five things both in our lives and we see these things in Samson's life. The first one is that Samson was impulsive, that he was impulsive. If he saw a woman that he wanted, he went and got it. If he saw some food that he wanted, he went and got it. If he saw something that he wanted, he went and got it. He was, he was not living out of righteous anger, but out of roid rage. Like he was just living for the moment. He was impulsive. Studies would show that you are 23 times more likely to have a car accident by being on your phone than if you were drunk and high simultaneously. But for us, don't hang on to that point. Here's the point, which is pretty wild. Some of you are like, let me write that down and tell my kids. That's fine. It's true. I can send you the stats. I, I keep links of those because my wife is always like, hey, in case somebody asks you, make sure you're not making this stuff up. I'm not. I'll send it to you. Shoot me a text. Take me out to lunch. For us, the reason that's important is because we live in the moment. If someone texts us, we got to see what the text says. We got to text back. We got to post about something. Oftentimes, as we're driving down the road. But I would ask you, are you impulsive when it comes to the sin in your life? Whose desire are you living for in the moment? Are you trying to fulfill your desire or God's desire for your life? Which one is your knee-jerk reaction? Which one are you impulsive about? What, what are you sacrificing for a little taste of honey? You're like, man, Samson, that is, so, that is so ridiculous. Why would you do that? But we see it all the time in our culture. We see it all the time in our church and other churches that men are pursuing other things, that women are pursuing other things beside God just for a little taste of honey. Just a little bit. We're impulsive. Secondly, not only do we see impulsivity in, in Samson, but we also see that he's willing to compromise. He's willing to compromise. He knew the laws of God. He treated them casually, oftentimes even breaking them. The trajectory of sin starts out as fun, but it never ends up that way. He begins with a kegger. He, he, goes to the, to, uh, he goes to a prostitute. He ends up with Delilah, and then he ends up as a blind slave. It's one thing to the next. It never, sin never fulfills what it initially promises. You may be thinking, what is a little harmless fun? What are a few small lies? What are a few small clicks on my phone or on a computer screen? What are a few cheats in my taxes? What are these small things? And I would beg the question, instead of thinking about the results and the consequences of sin in the immediate, think about how you are disgracing the name of God by even the small things that you are taking for granted in your life, by even the small ways that you are compromising what we know to be true. We see that Samson is also unteachable. How do you respond to criticism? Are you one of those folks that's unteachable? Are you like Samson? Do you know what's true? And when people bring that up to your, ah, let me make some excuses for that. Let me sidestep that. Let me, let me tell you my reasons why. Samson was a loner. He was alone almost every single passage that we see. In fact, even at his wedding back in chapter 14, we see that they had to bring friends to him, bring companions to him because he didn't have any. Are there people in your life close enough to speak into your life? Because certain things grow in darkness. You know what those things are? Mold and fungus. Not good things. Unless you're um, making kombucha or something like that. But most of that is really bad stuff. And I would plead with you this morning, preaching, showing up on Sundays is insufficient for you to follow Christ. Preaching is insufficient 
for you to be a fully formed disciple of Jesus? Are you a part of a life group? Are you a part of a DNA group? Don't be like Samson. Don't be a loner. The fifth element that we see in his life, and I would hope that this would prick our hearts also, is, is that Samson was proud. He never gave God glory one time until the end of his life. And even then he prayed and brought the pillars down. James 4 says that we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I think it's possible for us to have the gifts of the Spirit without having the fruit of the Spirit. We often take what God has given us, the things that he's blessed us with, and that could be, uh, that could be financially, that could be money, that could be time, that could be resources, spiritual gift, and, and we use those things for ourselves. We're incredibly selfish with those. But the grace of God uses our weaknesses even for our good. But in our sin, we take the good things and we use them against God. That is the essence of pride. We are our own worst enemy most of the time. The second thing that we see here in the life of Samson, the second thing that we learn is that the world needed somebody stronger than Samson. The world needed somebody stronger than Samson. This is the last judge that we see here. And if you've ever watched a show or read a book you, you get to that last chapter, you get to that last season, you get to that last episode, you're like, man, I hope they put a beautiful bow on this thing. And there's so many times that you're let down. The movie could have been fantastic, but if the ending stinks, it ruins the whole movie, right? If the, if the last chapter in the book stinks, you're like, I'm not going to read this again. I'm not going to recommend this. So we see so much hope here with this last chapter. And then we have Samson, who is mostly a disappointment. And if you go back, look with me, if you would, at chapter 13. And it says there in verse number five, the second half, he shall be Nazarite to God from the tomb. Here's what God says. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Because we get to the end of Samson's life and we're like, we, we need something more. There's got to be more. And the Israelites, as they're reading this, as they're understanding this, we have the same perspective today, except ours is a little bit better because we can look at Samson and say, man, he wasn't Jesus, but we have a true, better deliverer. Samson points to Jesus. There, there are a ton of similarities. I don't have time to go through all the similarities in their lives, but, but both of their births were prophesied before they were born. Both of their births were miraculous. One was to an old, barren woman, and one was to a young, unmarried virgin. When Samson was born, he brought great joy in the midst of shame. And when Jesus was born, he was thought to be a product of shame in Mary. Little did, did they know at the time that Jesus was actually born to not just to bring shame, but to take on our shame. Jesus, or Samson, when he was born, he was born with a Nazarite vow. So there was respect there. But we know that Jesus was cast out as a Nazarene. We don't know very much about their childhood. We just know a lot about their birth. But we know that Samson's strength was physical. It was in his physique. You could see it. But Jesus' strength was because of the empowerment of the Spirit. And so as Samson tied up foxes with fire, Jesus spoke to demons, and he healed lepers. He spoke to nature, and it obeyed him in an instant. We know that Samson compromised on the law of God. But with Jesus Christ, there is no compromise. His desire was simply for the will of God. He obeyed the word perfectly. 
He is a real, true, better Savior. Like Samson, Jesus was betrayed by someone who said they loved him. Like Samson, Jesus was handed over to Gentiles. Like Samson, Jesus was bound. He was tortured. He was mocked. Like Samson, Jesus was put on a cross at the age of 33. Both of them died with arms outstretched. But Jesus was not chained for his own sin. He was chained for ours. And Jesus didn't just break the bonds of a rope, but he broke the bonds of death. Jesus is the better Samson. In both of their deaths, it looked like they were defeated, but it required death for the enemy to be ultimately defeated. Samson is here in the temple of Dagon in the midst of this pagan worship, and Samson brings it down, killing thousands. But Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, removed the penalty of sin. He removed the power of Satan. He doesn't just remove those things, just killing those things, but now he makes way for the spirit to indwell his people so that we can have hope in life forever. Samson's strength became his weakness. It became his downfall. But Jesus Christ set aside his glory. He came in weakness so that he could show us his strength, so that he could redeem us. When Samson was buried, we saw right there at the end of chapter 16, they found his body and they put his bones in a tomb and they are still there today. But when Jesus Christ died, he said, it is finished. And he laid in the ground, but three days later, he was raised to life by the power of the spirit. That is our true and better judge who is reigning eternally, who doesn't just have some strength, but he has all strength. He doesn't just have some power, but he has all power. He doesn't just save some people, but he wants to save all people. He's a good, better, generous judge, a good, better king. He is the one who has saved us. He has brought us true salvation. We see here in the life of Samson that it's never too late to cry out to God. So some of y'all are like, man, I'll do it later, or you don't know what I've done. Be reminded here from the life of Samson, it's never too late. God is not waiting on you to make good choices before he'll bless you. He's not waiting on you to be godly and then, you know what, because of your godliness, now I'll bless you. It's only by his mercy that you are here this morning. His mercy, like Samson's hair that started to grow back, is brand new every single morning. And so I would plead with you, friends, as we sit here this morning, fall upon the mercy and the grace of God because we can identify with Samson, but Jesus Christ came and identified with us. He lived for us as a man. He lived perfectly, obeying every part of the law for our sake. He died the death that we deserve to die with arms outstretched. He took the wrath of the Father on himself, who was the perfect sacrifice. He was put in the ground. He rose three days later so that we can have hope and life, and peace, no matter what happens. He has empowered us with his spirit. After he rose 50 days later, he sends his spirit at Pentecost to his people. He says, go and live in my power, live in my strength. We think most of Samson's life, we look at it, we're like, man, what a failure. But Hebrews 11 says that Samson was a faithful man. He lived by faith. Was it because of most of his life? No. 
but it's because he finally repented to Yahweh and said, I want you to use me. Wherever you are, I would encourage you, plead with you. Don't wait till you're there on your deathbed because we don't know when that's going to happen. Don't wait till your last dying moments like Samson did. Repent now because God wants to use you, not just in your last days, but in all your days. Fall upon his mercy now. If we see anything from the life of Samson, we see that God uses messed up people for his glory, for his honor, for the furtherance of his kingdom. You have a cup there with uh, bread on the top and juice in the bottom. We do this to remember who Christ is and what he has done. I'd ask you to take that. As you hold that piece of bread there from the top, be reminded that Christ's body was broken for us. We can look at the broken body of Samson. We can be reminded of this crazy story of all the little inflections that we see in the language. But the body of Christ was perfect. Samson deserved to die. Jesus did not. Christ's body was broken so that we could have faith in him. He told his disciples, he said, take, eat all of it. This cup has juice in it. Jesus gave his disciples wine. They drank out of what's called the common cup. They drank out of that and they, he said to them, this is my blood that was shed for you. So even for us today, thousands of years after Samson was killed, he pointed to Jesus Christ. We can sit here today and celebrate the fact that we have a brand new identity because of the blood of Christ. And as we drink this, we're reminded this is a spiritual interaction between us and Christ. This is us reminding ourselves and reminding each other that it's only through Christ's blood that we can have a relationship with God the Father. If you have done that, I would encourage you to follow in his likeness. And if you never have, I would pray that you would repent even today for the first time. But he says, take, drink all of it. Father, we love you and thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for the life and story of Samson. We thank you that even at the end that he, uh, that he repented, he turned to you and we see in Hebrews eleven thirty two and 33 that by faith he responded and it was counted to him as righteousness. We celebrate that this morning. I pray for the souls in this room. I pray that by faith, not because of our own strength, that we would turn to you, that would re, we, we would repent of the sin that's in our lives. And if we've repented before, that we would do it again, that we would follow headlong after you. I pray that you would fill us with joy and with life and with strength. May we be encouraged by the life of Samson on how not to live, on how not to compromise. But may we be more encouraged by the life and the death and the redemption of Jesus Christ to be reminded that we are his hands and his feet. May that wash over us this morning. May we be reminded of that even as we go to our homes. You have called us and you have commissioned us to be your people. 
It's in Christ's name we pray.